0: You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Main Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program.
1: One of the goals of the strategic plan is to have St. Joseph's College become a learning destination, a place that will welcome, invite folks from all over, of all ages, to come to campus to spend two hours or two years or four years or however long they'd like engaged in one of the core values of liberal arts education, which is lifelong learning. What do you want to learn today?
2: What's the impact on the environment? And we need to ask ourselves questions like that because in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime, maybe even our grandchildren's lifetime, that's not gonna directly become a problem or impact us, but what happens down the road? What happens to the generations to follow us? And and I think we have a moral obligation to use our resources more wisely, to stretch them out, make them more available to others, but also not to negatively impact long-term health, not only ourselves, but also the planet.
0: Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Apothecary by Design, MacPage, and Berlin City Honda of Portland.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 204, St. Joseph's, a small college renaissance, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 9th, 2015. St. Joseph's College, located on the shores of Sebago Lake in Standish, is a small Catholic liberal arts school that is experiencing a renaissance. Founded by the Sisters of Mercy in Portland in 1912, St. Joe's has long been known for educating students in fields such as nursing, education, and business. Lately, they have added a permaculture farm and are planning a hospitality center and multi-age educational living experience. Today we speak with College President Jim Delugos and farm manager Michael Russell about the future of this forward-thinking institution. Thank you for joining us. It has been my great pleasure to visit St. Joseph's College in Standish several times over the last Um, year or so, as we're writing an article for Maine Magazine. And it's also a privilege today to have before me Jim DeLugos, who is the president of St. Joseph's College in Standish, Maine, to have a little conversation about the work that they've been doing over there. Jim lives in Wyndham with his wife and two children. It's great to see you again.
1: Thanks, Lisa. It's good to see you.
3: I'm really impressed with St. Joseph's. I, I first visited St. Joseph's when I was um, I think in high school and part of our Catholic youth leadership organization. I was over there for a week and then I went back there for the advanced Catholic youth leadership and I can't claim to be a practicing Catholic currently, but certainly I was impressed with um, the campus. It, it's You're on a lake. You have beautiful facilities. In fact, you've built a beautiful new athletic facility. You have um, a farm there now, a big stone barn, and you're graduating people who are uh, really reinforcing the workforce in Maine in, in great ways, nurses and teachers and business people, um, and yet you've got new and interesting ideas for what a small college or university should be. So how did this come to be? Why are you here in our great state, and, and what, what, why all the wonderful ideas that you've been trying to implement? Sure.
1: Well, you know, I I arrived at St. Joseph's um, three years ago now, in the summer of 2012. Uh, And I had spent um, the previous almost 25 years um, working in higher education. Um, And along the way, I came to really appreciate the importance of small colleges, the smaller college model uh, in the higher ed ecosystem. Uh, and for for decades now, people have been saying that college, small colleges, don't make sense economically. They're not the most efficient way to provide education to students. Um, but having spent uh, all that time working in, in this is my third small third small college, I really came to understand the int- the incredible value that we provide to students. Um, and so it's very important for me that we make sure that small colleges be here uh, in the next ten years, twenty years, thirty years, you know, hundred years. Um, I say on a regular basis, the work I do is not so much focused on um, now, but on what will happen when I'm long gone. <laughs> you know, making sure that this, this, this kind of college, and in particular St. Joseph's College, is still there and thriving. The basic understanding that I, I bring to this is that the, the traditional business model for higher education, uh, which has been a sort of a one-size-fits-all model, makes no sense uh, when you consider the variety of types and sizes and kinds of colleges. Uh, And it has probably never really worked for smaller colleges. It's predicated on a significant amount of student revenue, uh, on philanthropic activity, um, but it's also predicated largely on uh, a significant amount of of revenue coming each year from uh, investments, from the endowment. Uh, And small colleges do not have large endowments. the uh, the median endowment for uh, colleges in this country is about 22 million dollars. Um, so, fully half of the colleges have endowments of 22 million or less, uh, which is a very different uh, uh, way of thinking about it from what we hear in the in the in the public conversation about colleges and endowments. We hear about Harvard and those sorts of things. Well, most of us are nowhere near the the Harvard one. So we don't have a, a significant enough endowment that's gonna generate the kind of revenue that we would need to have that traditional business model actually work. Okay, so we could do several things. We could spend all our time trying to grow our endowment to $400 billion, <laughs> and that's not happening. <laughs> or we could say, what else can we do? How else can we make this work? Um, St. Joseph's is, is particularly uh, well-positioned um, Uh, because of the amazing campus we have uh, to try some new things and so what the strategic plan that the board of trustees approved this past fall uh, is predicated on is the development of what we're calling um, mission aligned businesses things that we can do on campus uh, that will um, generate revenue uh, that will support our core activity um, but that will also be aligned as the name suggests with Uh, the college's values and our core commitments. Uh, And so uh, what we've developed are a series of businesses that, at least in prospect, uh, will generate revenue, but will also provide students with the chance uh, to uh, get hands-on learning, experiential learning. Um, and also opportunities for students to actually earn real money, uh, which is part of the challenge also these days for many students. Uh, It's hard for students today, many students today, to really get the most out of their college experience because they have to spend so much time working. Um, And uh, in many cases that's in very low paying jobs that require them to get up very early in the morning uh, and go and do something which is not Uh, really going to be relevant to their lives in the long term, so if we can develop businesses on campus that will give students a chance to uh, uh, work in their field or potential field or explore what their potential field might be uh, and also uh, provide revenue for the college, that's a great idea. Uh, We think it's a tremendous model. Um, so we have several going. Uh, one is already functioning, and it's the, uh, the farm, uh, which we'll be talking about a little later. The farm is uh, sort of grew almost accidentally. Um, uh, back in about 2000, the college acquired some property uh, across Whitesbridge Road from the main campus uh, with the idea at that point that it would become a, a series of athletic fields. Um, well, various things uh, happened, as, as is often the case, and, and that plan um, uh, we moved on from um, the property has a tremendous uh, 100-plus-year-old stone barn that you mentioned. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was part of the Verrill uh, vacation estate uh, that, that the Sisters of Mercy bought in the 1950s when they moved the college from, Stan- from Portland to Standish. Uh, the stone barn is a is a, a one-of-a-kind. Uh, there's not another one like it in certainly all of Maine. There may not be another one like it in all of New England, um, because it's not a traditional New England barn. It's got a Norman influence, um, which has to do with Mr. Verrill's uh, interest in architecture. Um, so the, the property was sitting um, idle, uh, and some folks on campus said, well, we like, like to garden. Can we go over there and plant some tomatoes? <laughs> uh, and at that point, the answer was, sure. If you want to, don't hurt yourselves, and you know, don't get too settled, because we don't know what's gonna happen next with that property. Uh, and that just grew. Uh, it grew organically, uh, pun intended, I guess, out of this interest uh, that people had on campus to, to, to spend some time on the land. Uh, eventually, uh, our our then food service provider, uh, Bon Appetit, got involved. They were very committed to to local produce and to, to sustainable um, practices, uh, and they said, well, could we do more in a more organized way? Uh, something over at the farm, and the college said, sure, but don't get too subtle. We don't know what's going to happen next. Um, and When I arrived in 2012, the farm was, was really sort of functioning on a year-to-year basis. Uh, we actually have a, we had hired a, a full-time uh, uh, Farmer uh, Michael Russell, uh, and he was functioning in that role, but the, there was no sort of long-term plan for the farm nor long-term commitment. Uh, and I said, "Well, this is this is crazy. This is a wonderful thing. This is, makes absolute sense." So we committed uh, instantly to a long-term, a long-term uh, relationship with the farm. Um, at this point. Uh, the farm is actually licensed to sell everything they produce uh, vegetables and meat products uh, and anything else soaps and uh, various things we have um, uh, sheep and goats uh, we have alpacas uh, we have lots of chickens uh, um, uh, and we're we're in the process of of expanding our field under cultivation from one acre to, f- to five acres um, we produce uh, a, again a variety of a variety of food types. Um, A lot of it goes uh, over to our café, where it's served to our students, uh, a wonderful um, uh, farm-to-fork model. Uh, A good deal of it goes down the road to Catherine's Cupboard, a food pantry in Standish that the college supports. Um, And I've been saying to folks, at some point we're going to now, in the near future, I hope, have enough food that we'll have to be forced to sell it, (laughs) we'll no longer be able to give it away, um, which is part of that business model. Uh, Michael is a great uh, resource. He provides lots of educational experiences for students, not just our students, but s- school children in the area. Um, during the spring and the fall, um, you'll always see three or four uh, big yellow school buses over there. Uh, students come and they learn where food comes from. It doesn't come from the grocery store. It's not wrapped in plastic. It comes from someplace else. Uh, our own students uh, have, a, have a wonderful relationship with the farm. Um, all students at St. Joseph's are required to take an environmental science course. Um, as part of that, they do some time on the farm, getting their hands dirty. Uh, our nursing students uh, get wonderful experience uh, with basic life functions like births and all those sorts of things. They practice giving shots to the animals. and um, We have a, a, a pre-veterinary program and the students in that program also get a lot of experience. And so we have this core activity already happening and the question is, well, why don't we sort of take this and make it into more of a, a traditional business uh, and have students really be part of the operation of that business and sort of learn what it means to, ha- to run a small business. Small farming is, a, is a, an area for growth in Maine. Uh, and so we are, we are excited about the, the prospect of soon being able to offer um, non-degree, non-credit programs uh, to folks in Maine who want to learn more about how to run an s- efficient, sustainable, small farm. Um, so that's the kind of model we're talking about. Um, uh, students can be involved in all sorts of things, from the business aspects to the, the marketing aspects, the actual production. Uh, the farm will also provide us opportunities to talk about um, food insecurity. Uh, food distribution systems for small, for small farmers which is one of the great challenges that uh, smaller farmers have how do they get their their product to market um, so it it's a it's as you can see it's got a whole range of 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 opportunities aspects right, to make it really a vibrant part of, of the conversation going forward um, that's just one of the models
3: it's my understanding that St. Joseph's was originally on um, the campus the Portland campus here of Catherine Macaulay, and that this is a Sisters of Mercy school. Catherine McAuley, of course, is the the sister of the Sisters of Mercy. And one of the big tenets of, of Catherine Macaulay was hospitality, and is hospitality. So the thing that I find interesting is that you're not just doing a farm, you're also talking about hospitality from um, you have a big stone barn that's going to become an events facility and you're talking about uh, putting some um, condos and um, I, I think a hotel eventually down on the waterfront. So you're actually going to be welcoming people onto the campus who aren't just students.
1: That's right, one of the goals of the strategic plan uh, is to uh, make uh, have St. Joseph's College become a learning destination, a place that will uh, welcome invite folks from all over of all ages to come to campus to spend, two hours, or two years, or four years, or however long they'd like. Um, engaged in uh, um, one of the core values of, of liberal arts education, which is lifelong learning. What do you want to learn today? Uh, so the hospitality, the stone barn, uh, will is in the process of being renovated into an event center. Uh, it's a great place for all kinds of events, from wedding receptions to conferences. Uh, it's a tremendous space. We're very excited about that, um, but as you think about this this mixed-use community, right? Again, all in support of the core act, the core uh, college activity of educating students. What else can we do? Uh, what else can we do? What makes sense for us? So, while we don't have a tremendous um, endowment in terms of dollars, we have 480 acres on Sebago Lake. Twenty. 100 feet of Sebago Lake Shorefront as part of campus. Um, so we feel pretty lucky uh, in that resource. Uh, and the question is, how can we uh, use it uh, in the best sense of that term uh, to support our, support our work? So in addition to the, the, the stone barn, which will become this event and conference center, um, what else can we do? Uh, so we talked about some kind of, of small uh, and appropriate to the area and to the spirit of the area lodging facility. Um, uh, and that's a a project which is still in the conceptual stage we have some great ideas working for that Uh, we've talked about uh, in the same vein uh, an active 55 um, housing community uh, for those who who would really love to be able to um, spend part of their lives uh, right on the water close to the water uh, but also, really want to have the resources of, of, a, of a vibrant, active community. Um, so, one of the ideas that comes out of that is uh, we have we've, our students do tremendous work in terms of community based learning and volunteer services. We've been recognized several years uh, in the president's honor roll. Uh, we actually, this January, Received uh, notice that the Carnegie Foundation had recognized officially St. Joseph's as a community engaged learning college, one of the, I think it's 460 in the country um, that has that designation. We've got tremendous um, things going on there. Um, wouldn't it be great uh, to have a, a group of, of, of additional people who can become part of that activity? You know, people who have decades of business experience and who could mentor our students, could work with them on projects. We're working with the town of Standish on several projects. We're working with other entities, not-for-profits, and actually some for-for-profits. So to add that 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 other uh, aspect of, of community-based learning, um, one of the challenges that we, we recognize uh, in the world these days is that uh, as people stay in the workforce longer, um, the intergenerational Disconnect um, creates all kinds of uh, opportunities for, for misunderstanding. Well, why not take that on? Why not say, let's, let's figure out how it is that people from different generations can actually function together and make that part of our project as well. So the hospitality piece is, you know we'd we be delighted to have anyone who wants to join us uh, and to be part of our journey, right? It's a, it's a com- community which has uh, uh, is really strong because of its core values. Hospitality is one of them, uh, that come from the Sisters of Mercy, uh, who founded the college in, in, uh, in 1912, um, uh, and so if, if this is a place that seems to you to, uh, to uh, sort of give off a vibe that makes sense, come and see, come and experience, absolutely.
3: On my second visit to St. Joseph's, it was um, clear that I was not going to escape without a meal. And it was a wonderful meal. It, but it was so important that I that I come in and I and I wasn't prepared for. It wasn't just Lisa. Why don't you come to the cafeteria? It was there's a meal that's it was on the top floor of um, I'm not sure what hall it was. ALFOND Hall. ALFOND Hall, and out looking over the lake with mountains in the distance and this beautiful spread that was prepared um, of mostly local and, and or um, organic foods. And there was such pride, and, and not only that, but there was, there was like an entire group of people that was all sitting there eating with me, and everybody seemed so um, happy to be there, so energized by their relationship with St. Joseph's one of your sisters, um, she described herself as, I believe it was a New York Italian nun, not to be confused <laughs> with a with a Boston Irish Catholic nun, but just the way that she described herself was unlike any nun that I have ever met before. She, is, she she. I think that her teachings are in criminal justice, for example. And it was fascinating to me that you've taken this idea that many of us have about the religious life or nuns or... Catholicism, and you've brought it forward into the future by bringing other people with you that are going to exemplify something different than what we might have traditionally thought about as religious and spiritual.
1: And it's really a, a good point. Sister Michelle um, is actually a graduate of St. Joseph's, uh, and when she graduated, she went, uh, her degree's in sociology, she went and was actually a police officer in, on Long Island... Before she decided, oh, I have this religious calling, and she came back and, and rejoined and joined Sisters of Mercy. So, yes, she's a she's an extraordinary person. As are all the sisters who who are part of campus. Um, one of the challenges that religious communities who have sponsored uh, all kinds of activities, but especially higher education in this country for for a very long time, have is that there, there are simply diminishing numbers of people who are interested in uh, that kind of uh, commitment. Uh, and so the Sisters of Mercy are, uh, are one of the groups that have, have recognized that, uh, and while then they're very concerned about the future, uh, and how, how it is that the spirit of, of Catherine Macaulay and the special characteristics and charism of spirituality, of Catherine Macaulay, uh, can continue beyond the time when it's conceivable that Sisters of Mercy vowed sisters uh, will be available to exemplify that life. So the Citizens of Mercy have, have made a, a, a very large project of making sure that the people who are working with them in their ministries, whether it's higher education or hospitals or whatever it is, you know, really understand what this is um, and, and are able to express it, not just verbally, um, but also in their actions. Uh, and so at the college, one of our goals is to make sure that everything we do sort of exudes mercy, uh, that it really, people understand that. Um, and... Um, Again, hospitality, uh, respect, um, recognition of, of the need to be supportive of those who are less fortunate than we are are all part of that. That's one of the things that I really uh, find most energizing about St. Joseph's, um, uh, and that I found energizing about the, 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 the place I was um, uh, prior to coming here. Um, Catholic colleges or faith-based faith based colleges really provide uh, uh, another uh aspect of the, of the conversation we can have in the community because uh, we can talk about things that you can't necessarily talk about uh, or in some cases institutions don't choose to talk about because you know, among the things you shouldn't talk about in play company are religion and politics, right? Well, <laughs> let's talk about religion. Let's talk about spirituality. Um, Maine has an amazing capacity for spirituality which I think is just tremendous you know and uh, and every year of course or every every whatever the, the cycle is you know we, we get the reports that uh, Maine again has come up as one of the least religious states in some survey um, you know if you live here it doesn't feel that way uh, because of this strong sense of spirituality so let's make that part of the conversation let's see how that works um, one of the goals for our, one of the, uh, the initiatives in the strategic plan is to create a, a center for the 20, for 21st century um, uh, considerations of faith and spirituality. How do those, th- those two things come together? Because they're, depending on who you listen to, they're not the same. Well, let's talk about that. Let's see what that looks like. Uh, everyone, it seems to me, uh, has a spirituality, whether they know it or not. Um, uh, if you unpack it uh, for some individuals, they may not be particularly happy about it, um, but it's there. There are some some core values, some things that we really deeply believe and that motivate uh, our actions. Um, let's try to make that more conscious. Let's try to make that more part of our of the way we move through the world. Uh, the examples of the Sisters of Mercy who are on campus uh, are tremendous for our students. Um, we have we're lucky that we have uh, eight sisters who are part of the college community. There are many places. Uh, around the country where, where they're lucky to have one or two sisters. So we have a, this, this wonderful group of sisters. Most of them are retired. Uh, some do volunteer work. Some are teaching still full-time in the classroom. Uh, but they're a great example for our students and for for uh, the entire college community. We were having a, a lunch with uh, with some uh, another guest in the last couple of months in one of our faculty members, uh, we were talking about the college, and, uh, and he said, well, he, he said, I'm not Catholic, but um, uh, and I had really had no thought I'd come to work at a Catholic college, but here I am. Uh, he says, I've come to understand uh, and really know and, uh, and and appreciate the Sisters of Mercy, um, and it's that their presence and their charism um, that informs uh, so much of what we do, uh, and that makes it possible for people who who don't have any prior relationship with the Catholic Church or, or in some cases uh, have you know distant relationships or troubled relationships really to see a particular expression of Catholicism which is wonderful and giving and open and embracing.
3: Well it was interesting for me because my middle child, is; she just completed a year and she's going into her second year at Providence College which as you know is run by the Friars, right. they're the Providence College Friars yeah. And they are required to do two years of um, a core curriculum, which involves conversations about sort of the foundations of religion and um, I'm not even sure exactly what else is involved, but sort of cultural values and some, to some extent morality. And I have never had such heated discussions with my child as after her sitting through a lecture about something, about the Dante's Inferno and how this um, sort of relates to her modern day life. And it really it really struck me that this is something that because it it's important enough to a college to have it be there. And similarly, I'm sure that St. Joseph's has some core elements that they're putting yep. out there that it's actually still relevant to children in this generation, children, young adults in this generation. and it's still, generating conversation. It's still causing them to think about themselves and where they fit in the broader environment.
1: So we have uh, you know, uh, cross-cutting themes in the strategic plan are wellness and sustainability. Uh, wellness is the, the human name for sustainability. Um, and we talk about that. We don't just mean recycling, and we don't just mean you know, buying uh, produce locally, um, all of which we are doing, and we're delighted uh, to, to be able to do that to the level that we are. It's extraordinary in some cases. Um, just as a quick example, 40% of the food we purchase comes from within 300 miles. Um, by comparison, most institutions um, are happy if they get to about 10%. So we have made a strong commitment to, to buying locally. Um, but sustainability for me also means all those things that we care about. So if we care about philosophy, if we care about the classics, if we care about the liberal arts tradition, uh, what are we doing today to ensure that they will be there, fifty, a hundred years from now, for other people to care about them and to love them. So, uh, you know, the disciplines themselves need to be uh, need to be uh, nurtured and cherished, um, and the classics, and Dante's Inferno, as an example. If people stop reading it, and there are many reasons to stop reading it, right? What will happen? What will happen to that part of our rich cultural past? Um, you know, uh, I'm a in my other part of my life, I'm a literature professor. <laughs> So now we maybe have, have gone down a dangerous path. I'll try to rein myself in. <laughs> um, you know, classics. Uh, why things become classics is an interesting uh, study in itself. Um, but fundamentally, there's one theory which says classics are classics because, uh, for each generation, they raise important questions. Maybe not the exact same questions. You know, and it may not be that they convey truth with a big T. But they generate conversations of the kind you're talking about that your daughter is encountering. And we have to make sure, we have to work to make sure that those conversations continue well into the future. Absolutely.
3: Well, Jim, we could keep talking about this for quite a long time. As you know, I'm a big fan of education and actually of classics and of reading and spirituality and I think that there are so many different ways that the show that we do here with Love Maine Radio and St. Joseph's and the work that you're doing so many different ways that they touch but for now I'll just have to to leave people with the knowledge that there is going to be an upcoming article in Maine Magazine about St. Joseph's College and um I'm really impressed. I'm impressed with what your organization, and you and the people that you're working with and your entire community, your students, um, are working towards. I, I love seeing people take something and um, innovate with it and work with it and nurture it. And that's something that's happening at St. Joseph's College. So I really appreciate your doing
1: that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa.
3: We've Uh, been speaking with Jim Glugos, who is the president of St. Joseph's College in Standish, Maine. And for those of you who have not been out to visit, I encourage you to do so, to learn about about them and um, read our upcoming Maine Magazine article. Thanks for coming in, Jim.
1: Thank you.
0: Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by MacPage, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. Love, Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland easy it's how buying a car should be go to Berlin City for more information there was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns apothecary by design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be.
3: Today in the studio, we have with us the first person who has ever worn a dashiki to our recording space, which I love. And it's also kind of interesting because this is Michael Russell, who is the farm manager at Pearson Town Farm, which is affiliated with St. Joseph's College in Standish, Maine. You wouldn't necessarily think that somebody would be wearing such a brightly colored garment, um, which actually is originally of Africa. So thanks for livening up our space, Michael. Absolutely. And it's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm I'm actually personally impressed that I knew that this was called a dashiki before John McCain, our audio um, producer, actually mentioned this. And you have an interesting connection to Africa.
2: A a couple of loose affiliations with Africa. I've had a number of friends who've gone over there and served uh, with a number of nonprofit organizations, um, largely involved with agriculture in the area. and it's become a point of interest for me just because uh, as climate change is happening, you know, we're, we're finding that we're in a place now where we have to be much more creative about how we're going to grow our food. Uh, and if ever there was an adverse environment to grow food in, you know, especially some of the traditional foods we think about, Africa uh, being hot uh, and dry at times, uh, there's a place there. And so some of the technology, technology using that term loosely, um, that we've seen that they use for growing Things that we would commonly find here uh, is fascinating to me. So, and I'm going to make a confession: I did not know that it was called a tashiki. Tashiki. Yeah, I just call it my summer shirt. So,
3: (laughs) well, it's very. uh, It happens to be. It's orange and yellow and green, and there's big, big patterns. And, um, but the last time I met you at Saint Joseph's, you were not wearing this summer shirt. You were wearing more traditional farmer's garb, I would say.
2: Right. Uh, and and that's because you you know you have to make uh, certain sacrifices being a farmer, and you're surrounded constantly by dirt, so you tend to burn through uh, your your nice clothes more quickly. So we have our, our rugged get dirty clothes, and then we have our nice go to town uh, or or be out in public clothes. So <laughs> brightly colored. This is uh, this is what we wear out.
3: Well, I'm enjoying it. So thank you. It definitely has brightened up my morning so far. So. Why are you a farmer? I'm always interested in the answer to this question.
2: Because I love it. Uh, I think, well, if you ask my wife, she would tell you right off the bat I would die in an office. Um, I spent probably the better part of 15 years working uh, in a cubicle, Uh, doing various things. Um, But the second that I got off of work, I was out, I was in the garden. Um, My very earliest memories with my parents were out in the garden. I grew up in a very uh, agricultural-heavy environment uh, in in, in Central California, Um, so it was all around us in the summertime. We were picking berries in the autumn. We were harvesting whatever there may be. We'd always raised some manner of of animal livestock or otherwise in the yard. And so um, the idea of being able to mingle Um, my passions with the rest of my life. I know there's that old adage about uh, not mixing work and pleasure, but uh, outside, all the time, you know, snow, rain, sleet, sun, what have you, uh, and, and there's that opportunity to bring others along for the ride, you know, in the last seventy years, we've become so disconnected from where our food comes from. We take it for granted that we can go to Shaw's or Hannaford or Safeway if you're on the west coast, uh, and you pick it up and there it is. Uh, and so I for me, it's becoming more and more important to to bring people out to that environment. And it allows me to be an educator uh, and work with with a wide variety of people without being stuck in a box.
3: I did notice this when I was, at the farm, um, that you have a number of students working with you. From from what I understand, you actually have people who are normally food service um, during the school year. When St. Joseph's is fully operational, they actually come out and do some grounds work and some farm work. So there are a lot of other people who are interested in getting their hands into the dirt.
2: Absolutely, I think now more than, well, maybe in any time in, in recent history, um, people are really reconnecting in this foodie movement. That that's you know just being maybe 10 or 15 years now um, is really finding its its way into a lot of people's brains and 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 people want to connect with where their food goes and I think that there's also there's something very spiritual about being able to get out and and not just connect with your food but be outside where we're in a, a culture where we're always on our computers or our tablets or our iPhones and and texting is the new form of communication and so to slow that down to really be able to get out and do something that maybe is more uh, an organic speed um, I think really appeals to folks uh, and and even the younger kids the younger kids have been great so there's this weird uh, you know you've got uh, uh, my age and older who kind of have some fond memories of grandma and and, and, and maybe mom and dad working in the garden and having their garden and then there's this there's this gap and then you've got these younger kids who are come into they're born into this uh, this resurgence in in, in, in Uh, organic agriculture and and connecting with your food. And then there's that gap in the middle. Uh, And so really connecting with those folks, um, I think, is important because a lot of them come out and they're terrified. They'll come out in their brand new white sneakers or their nice clothes, and and you can see the terror in their eyes. Uh, But then they get into the work and they they realize how fulfilling it is, and, and oftentimes it's those folks that come back for more.
3: I remember the same thing that you're describing, that my parents actually dug up part of their front lawn and and put a garden in, and they had us out there weeding, and we always had a compost um, pile. And myself in my own life, I would put a few tomatoes out by the door yard, and in the door yard, and I I have always had a compost pile. But but yeah, I, I definitely feel like there is something that happened where all of a sudden there was something scary about trying to grow something. And I don't know why that is, because we still have backups. We still have, you know, Safeway, Hannaford, Shaws, local food, local farmers markets. There are still there's still going to be food even if we can't grow it. Right. So I wonder why we're afraid.
2: I think it's just culturally, it's become a foreign phenomenon. You know, we think about, well, you know, I can only speak really personally. I can't speak for everyone, but yeah, you know, you've got Middle America where. Uh, all of the corn and the soy and all of the the produce is, is grown and then it comes back and we have the convenience of going uh, and picking it up from the supermarket. But then that leaves us with this with this information with this education gap where, okay, I know where to get it from, but how do I get it from here to there? Uh, by by way of that, I mean growing it from seed to to fruit. What if I'm going to do it wrong? What about the insects? What about the food safety? I think food safety is at the forefront of everybody's mind, and I think that there is. Um, a, lot, a great misunderstanding as to what that means, and, and in some ways, we've become afraid of our food in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. Uh, you know, you can go to the Safeway or the or the Hannaford, and you can pick up a bag of spinach, but we've seen uh, salmonella problems with the spinach there. And if it's happening on a commercial level, will it happen in my backyard? And so maybe that makes us a little nervous uh, about the idea of trying to do it ourselves.
3: Yeah, that's a really good point, and I think about all. I mean, spinach is one example, but we've we've seen ground beef recalls. We've seen, I mean, there isn't really anything that hasn't escaped some sort of food issue. Right, And that's just the stuff that actually makes us ill in the short term. That's just the diseases that crop up maybe as a result of poor fertilization or whatever. Um, for whatever reason, microbes are making it into that farming um, situation. But we don't even know about some of the stuff that might be making us Uh, sick longer-term, some of the stuff that's being used on crops, and we don't even know how this really impacts us, pesticides or antibiotics in um, livestock. So there is this interesting question that every day we have to get up and have three square meals and some snacks in between. We're putting it into our bodies, but what is it that's going in that we don't even realize?
2: Right. Well, and I think that 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 leads uh, to a much larger conversation because we have— Some of these unanswered questions, but then that, you know, what are the impact of these things? But then there's also a question of resources. Uh, You know, when the lion's share of our food system is is completely dependent on petroleum products, and we know that the population is increasing, and we know that that petroleum is a finite resource, and we know that that supply will decrease, um, what's plan B? What's the impact on the environment? And we need to ask ourselves, you know, questions like that because in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime, maybe even our grandchildren's lifetime, that's not going to directly become a problem or impact us. But what happens down the road? What happens to the generations to follow us? And and I think we have a moral obligation uh, to use our resources more wisely, um, to stretch them out, make them more available to others, but also not to negatively impact long-term health uh, of not only ourselves, but also the planet.
3: I'm, I'm sitting here just thinking about all the things that you just said and the broader implications of these, and I'm also thinking about um, what it means to really to get into the dirt and to be dirty and to really be faced with um, I guess when I was tor- I'm, I, something that was just seared in my mind, I'm a doctor, so I've seen people who have passed away, and I've seen birth, and I've seen that, you know, the very r- reality of just being in existence. But when I was visiting your farm last fall, uh, there was a little group of rabbits that had been born and had not, not survived, and their little bodies were lying there, and and that's, and that's the nature of it. That is truly the nature of this life that we inhabit. And yet I believe that we are all disconnected from this. So that becomes also a thing of fear. You right. know, Life, death, birth, illness. And that's something that we don't get to see if we're just going to the supermarket and taking something off the shelf.
2: Right. Uh, and there's a disconnect there. So uh, I have three children, uh, and, and I was a vegetarian for 12 years, better part of 12 years, Uh, and uh, when we got pregnant with our first, we decided that protein was probably a good idea, just for my wife's sake, Uh, and so when the children were born, we established one very simple rule, Um, and that is if you're going to be part of the food system on the consumer, and you have to participate in the whole cycle, Uh, and, and this is not only just the life and death. Uh, element of it. So they all, they get to choose whatever their whatever their animal is, whether it's a chicken or a lamb or whatnot. And, and they raise it from the day it's born and they participate in the processing of it. Uh, and they only have to do it once, but that's so they understand the fullness of the life cycle because we don't see, we go to Hannaford and we, or we go to the, the butcher shop and we pick up that nice packaged steak um, with no need to think about what was the process and we're completely removed from it. But there's also the, the human element of it. Uh, having not participated in that, can you empathize with the folks that are in the slaughterhouses that have to do the meat cutting and the packaging, uh, and the farmers who have to, you know, sort the cows and decide which ones do we keep, which ones do we cull? I feel like there's a dangerous propensity for us to become entitled. We're entitled to this, but we've never actually earned it, and we don't understand it, and I think that that understanding is important.
3: I've also thought about, um, and, and I'm also a vegetarian, although I eat fish. And it's more in raising a, an, an animal f- to eat, it takes up more energy. So I just try to st- I just try to steer closer to the vegetables. I'm right. trying to make it clear that I'm not, you know, like I'm not sort of some sort of um, extreme animal activist. I just this is sort of where I've come to in my life, right. health reasons, ethical reasons, personal decision. Um, but when I think about people who do eat animal products and the animals themselves and how they're raised. The energy that goes into raising an animal um, so that it can be used for meat, if it's humanely raised and they're, not, and they're not feeling stressed out while they're eating the grass and they're not feeling stressed out while they're being milked for milk and they're not stressed out when they finally will be sacrificed for food, then I would think that their stress hormones would be lower and I would think that they would actually be healthier for us to eat anyway.
2: Right. Well, and when we look at nature, uh, so uh, we uh, the farm is based on a permaculture principle, permaculture design, and, and part of that is what do we see in nature that we can mimic. Uh, agriculture is so uh, intensely dependent on foreign inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, uh, feed, seeds, all these things that, that by and large most farms we have to ship in. So there's there's a carbon footprint there because you've got the trucks and the packaging and all of that. Um, and when we look at nature, nature has been doing what nature has been doing for a very long time. And by and large, it's in balance. Uh, if something goes a little out of whack, it corrects itself very quickly. Um, and it's not shipping things in. You don't see um, Bullwinkle out on a tractor fertilizing the forest. And you don't see, uh, you know, Rocket the Flying Squirrel in a crop duster. Um, but what you see is you see animals and, and, and vegetation in balance. And I think uh, there's a spiritual element to it. I think you were kind of leading in that direction. Um, But there's also, you know, we need this in our food system. We need to eat more vegetables, by and large, because we don't eat enough vegetables, and we are very protein-dependent. But when we do eat those proteins, those who choose to, How, Rather than being a separate piece of the food production system, how do those integrate together? Because I think you see animals that are raised on on large, confined animal feed operations. uh, We all maybe in our heads have this idea that our happy steaks came from happy cows on happy grass and happy farms. But really, if you look at some of these large cattle operations, uh, you've got cows on barren dirt uh, with a conveyor belt with feed coming across, and that's not the way that nature has ever done it. And so, you know, by and large, they're missing some of those uh, the nutrients uh, that they're going to get out of the natural feedstocks that they're eating. They're missing that happy cow, uh, spiritual, if you will, element to it. Um, And it's going to be a completely different uh, nutrient supply for for the end stage consumers. That'd be us. We need to get back to a place where if we're going to eat proteins and and again, I feel like we should eat more vegetables. Proteins are not a bad thing. We see it in nature. There are herbivores, there are carnivores, uh, predator and prey animals, um, and that's all part of the cycle of life, uh, and, and the end result of those animals goes back to feed the plants, which goes back to feed the animals, and we have a system there, and I think that we need to get back to that in, in the human, in the consumer uh, phase of the whole food process. If not just for our physical health, also for our our, you know psychological and spiritual health of it all.
3: One thing that people have brought up when I've had this type of conversation with them um, previously is how do we scale up? So where we have such a large population, ever growing, um, ever needing food, how do we get to this place where we can offer a permaculture type of um, operation? in a way that we can actually feed people effectively.
2: Well, and that's what we hope to be able to demonstrate over at the farm. Uh, Permaculture in the larger commercial agriculture system is kind of... taboo word, uh, people, you know, well, this is the way we've always done it, this is the way it has to be done. When well, somebody introduces something new and we're naturally resistant to change, we know how we've always done it and that's great. Uh, so by creating a farm uh, based on natural systems and, and, and based on the idea of reducing hopefully the amount of work and the amount of inputs that we're bringing in, um, perhaps it's not going to be uh, the great cash cow Uh, But creating balance, balance, I think, is is the single most important thing. And I don't think that we would be prudent to move to an all permaculture system or an all organic system or an all conventional system. So here, one of my great concerns is that, like I said, the bulk of our food system is completely dependent on this one uh, petroleum driven food model. Where's our plan B? Um, when that collapses for whatever reason we run out of oil or some other unforeseen hiccup comes where's our plan B as we talk about scaling up let's talk about now um, you know a couple of years back we had a, a drought that went through most of uh, the middle part of America and food prices on everything from corn on the cob to egos went right through the ceiling you know we saw just with feedstock uh, we saw a 30 percent increase in less than two weeks um, so now you've got folks maybe in the bottom uh, economic brackets who were already struggling to access uh, food, whether it be healthy or otherwise, that now they can't even access the, we're going to use this phrase loosely, uh, the not-so-healthy foods. Um, so w- our hope is to, when we're thinking about scale-up, thinking about diversifying. Um, you know, let the, Inherently, the use of oil is not bad, I think, the problem, comes in how many of us are using how much of it all the time. Um, So say we wean off of that great dependence and we back it up with with a more conventionalized uh, organic system and then also with a permaculture system. So now we're still producing food, but in a way that will last much, much longer.
3: What I think is interesting is that you are not just talking the talk you're actually walking the walk along with these with St. Joseph students and also students from the community around St. Joseph's and also people who are a little bit older who want to come visit the gardens and so you're so for you it's really um, you're living the life that you are hoping to model I guess right.
2: I think that's important. You know, it's one thing do as I say, not as I do. I think we have to do, and there are folks out there that are into permaculture and permaculture design who are just light years ahead of what we're doing. Uh, and so, bringing all of those groups together, we have access to you know larger tracts of land than some. Um, but there are folks with maybe a bit more knowledge, and if we can bring those together to create a working, sustainable model, uh, you know, that's kind of our end game, and show other farmers that it can be done. Uh, Maine, we're seeing a rise in organic farmers. People have seen, okay, organic can happen, and there's that passion for it. So now we need to take that organic to the next step and say, okay, let's permaculture, it can be done, and it can be sustainable, and and it creates um, environmental balance, spiritual balance, psychological balance, economic balance, um, and and I think that that balance, that's really at the heart of of everything.
3: You mentioned that you originally had. central californian roots and somehow you ended up here in maine i believe your wife is from south portland originally so how did that connection happen
2: uh that's a long story for another show uh we were the result of a 3000 mile blind date Uh, (laughs) i met some folks that she grew up with out uh, they were working on the west coast and uh uh, the long and the short of it was I spent several months avoiding her because I wasn't about blind dates. Um, in fact, our first date, they decided that they would get us all together on the beach and, uh, and we would have a, a group date, and so uh, uh, I proceeded to throw her into the surf. <laughs> We, we had a little wrestling match, and I threw her into the surf. She had to go to a meeting immediately following this. So I figured I'd make her really mad, and that would end this blind date and nonsense. Uh, and two weeks later there, we were on our second first date. And uh, not long after, we were married, and here we are. And how old are your children? Children are 9, 10, and 14.
3: So I guess it's worked out okay so uh, far. It's worked out all right. Yeah. All right. And how do you like Maine?
2: Oh, I love Maine. Uh, so I had summered up here previously. My grandmother and, and aunt had lived in Bath, and so we had come up... Uh, for summers, which was great, but they hadn't warned me about was winter. Uh, so, we you know, back home, we could drive to the snow if we wanted to, but that was kind of an anomaly. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't think I was ready for the cold. <laughs> I'm used to four season growing, and we're finding new ways with uh, much thanks to Elliot Coleman to, to grow even through the winter using some hoop house technology. It's not quite the same, but uh, it works, it's good.
3: And wh- how has it been for you working over at um, St. Joseph's? Oh, it's
2: phenomenal. Uh, I love that it's not just about the mechanics of it, but it's it's deeper than that. It's not just about growing the food, it's not just about finding results, it's about creating community. Uh, it's about impacting people, not just college students for that four-year window, but we work with a whole range of uh, folks, you know, we've had the elderly out. Um, We've had the very, very young, uh, and we're able to create an educational experience for them that's tailored to what they need in that moment. So it's not formulaic. Um, the community by and large at the school is very supportive. I, in fact, we had some professors out, some business professors out. They took off their suits for a little while, came out and helped us work in the fields the other day, which was phenomenal. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's just great to see the energy of the college getting behind something that... I think other colleges might shy away from.
3: Well, it's been very clear to me in the the visits that I've made to St. Joseph's that you and the president, Jim DeLugos, are quite close. So, he must, there must be some embracing of the farmer and the farm.
2: Well, <laughs> if nothing else, he tolerates my madness, and so that's good. I thought Jim has been, has been uh, monumental in, in, uh, in helping things grow. And, uh, you know, the first couple of years we were on the farm, it was the, the previous presidents, and, and there was the agreement that, yeah, we'll grow for a year, we'll see how it goes. Maybe next year you'll be here, maybe you won't. And then the next year came. Uh, so, when Jim came onto the scene, Uh, He really uh, became that Lincoln, and and he saw the potential there, and and he absolutely ran with it. And what's been good was that he, sometimes uh, agriculture speaks a different language than business or the rest of the world, even uh, academics. And so Jim has been able to uh, translate and uh, hopefully make some sense out of the gibberish that I say to the rest of the folks on campus, and it's been good.
3: And how do your kids like this whole farming thing and, and getting close to the things that they're going to be eating?
2: Uh, my 14-year-old will probably move to New York City uh, just as soon as is humanly possible. Uh, my younger two, I think they'll stick with it for a while. Of the three, so I have two sons and a daughter. Uh, I think my daughter is is in this for the long haul. Uh, um, so, But but sometimes they drag their feet, and but by and large they get behind it and, and they enjoy going out and harvesting the produce that they eat or... or they don't necessarily like the processing of the livestock, but they like the end result and they like the beginning result. So um, I think they'll do all right.
3: And how do they feel about working with all of these people who are in and out of the farm over time oh. and, and the relationship with St. Joseph's? Yeah,
2: no, they they absolutely love it. And so we have been very intentional about uh, making sure that our, our children are our, just in the community. Farming is important and sustainability is important, but community building is the most important. If we don't have each other to rely on, then we really haven't anything. Uh, so they have adopted a number of the college students as they come through and uh, and and they have worked with, with everybody from the kindergartners on up. I had my nine-year-old, nope, my ten-year-old. Uh, we had new... Uh, student orientation not too long ago, and I was working with a group, and I turned around to see my 10-year-old leading a farm tour. Uh, So that was both exciting and terrifying, (laughs) but he got his information correct. So,
3: (laughs) Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing out at St. Joseph's. I think... um it's, I think about my own small college experience up at Bowdoin, it was great. It's also right in the middle of Brunswick, so that's not like, like they easily could have put a farm there, but it would have been really a different thing altogether if we had, if I was you know, walking from classroom to dirt. Um, it is a valuable thing that we're bringing back to people and something I know that, that a lot of individuals are craving. So the fact that you're able to integrate this, this new way of doing things into the college community I think is pretty admirable.
2: I appreciate it. We do what we can.
3: We've been speaking with Michael Russell, who is the farm manager at Pearson Town Farm, which is affiliated with St. Joseph's College in Standish, Maine. Um, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today, and uh, good luck with the... The Raising of the Crops.
2: Thank you very much.
3: You have been listening to Love, Main Radio, show number 204, St. Joseph's, a small college renaissance. Our guests have included James DeLugos and Michael Russell. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Also, read about St. Joe's in Main Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa, and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle. I hope that you have enjoyed our St. Joseph's, a small college renaissance show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Apothecary by Design, MacPage, and Berlin City Honda of Portland love main radio is recorded in the studio of maine magazine at 75 market street portland maine our executive producers are susan grisanti kevin thomas and dr lisa Belial. audio production and original music by john c mccain our content producer is kelly clinton love main radio is available for download free on itunes see www.lovemainradio.com or the Love Main Radio Facebook page for details.